cue sappy music. Hey there, Fighting for the Faith podcast listener. Just want to remind you at the top of the program here that Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. You know, no, the music isn't working. Kill the music. Yeah, sorry. I see other guys use sappy music. I, uh, bad idea. Remind me to talk to you after the program. Anyway, just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, financial contributions to keep bringing this program to you. If you don't support us financially already, visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on one of the friendly yellow buttons. Fill it all out. You know what to do. Or if you would like to do the traditional thing, you can make your check payable to Fighting for the Faith. Send that to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Okay, now you can play your music. Yeah. Enjoy listening to the program. I enjoyed making it. I hope you enjoy listening to it. Here we go. time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, February 14th, 2012. Yeah, my valentine to you is that I'm not going to cover any of the crazy things in the seeker-driven movement regarding this particular time of the year, this particular day. I don't think it makes for particularly good radio. Um, It's certainly not good Christian doctrine. I'm just going to ignore it. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. There is... Well, no shortage of crazy things being said out there is perfectly needless because it's not like God hasn't revealed this information or what he wants us to know in his scriptures. Um, It's found in God's word. And it requires, if you're going to understand it, you got to understand, well, simple things like, you know, verbs, nouns, pronouns, adjectives, adverbs. (laughs) I know. Come on. Is it really that? Yeah, it really is. It's it's really that simple. Um, you, What you want to look for is what it is that God intended for the text to say. One of the metaphors I've used uh, in the past, it's this idea that um, uh, if you're a parent, okay, and you have kids that are, you know, let's say, uh, have made it to junior high age and you haven't killed them. Because uh, believe me when I tell you, when you have children, uh, it it quickly becomes evident that uh, original sin has impacted all of them, and and they're not born basically good kids. Um, in fact, I never had to teach my kids how to misbehave, how to talk back, how to lie, how to how you know how, how to disobey, how to have a bad attitude. Never had to teach them any of that. That, in fact, all of those things kind of came pre-programmed, pre-wired, uh, and uh, it, that was their default setting. If anything, it um, parenting regu- requires a lot of work in well, um, in curbing th- that default setting out of your children, so that they can grow up and be productive members of society, rather than 
you know, uh, adults who live in their mother's basement and uh, eat Cheetos and, you know, spend time on a beanbag and, you know, things like that. But uh, <clears throat> anyway, so uh, the idea is, is that, uh, is that, you know, let's say that um, you're one of these parents and you've decided, you know, you're going to do something that might seem kind of crazy, um, might seem like a bad idea, but circumstances have made it such that you don't really have a choice here. And so you've decided that you're going to go and do your grocery shopping and leave your children at home. No babysitter. And uh, you're thinking, come on, you know, what trouble could they possibly get into? And, uh, you know, you're going to just go to, you know, go to the grocery store. You know, here in uh, in central Indiana, we have grocery s- stores like Meyer or Kroger or y- even a Super Walmart or something like that. And so y- y- what you decide to do is you're going to go grocery shopping. Um, you're going to leave the kids at home. And so to make sure they don't get into any mischief, you write a note. And the <laughs> the note goes something like this. Dear wonderful, blessed children. This is a great way to start a note to your children. I I will be gone for a couple of hours. While I'm gone, I expect you to, one, vacuum the house, two, dust, three, finish the laundry. Make sure that uh, when the uh, washing machine is finished, that the wet clothes make their way into the dryer and that you appropriately set the dryer and hit the start button so that when I get home, the house is sparkling clean. There's no, uh, there's no grunginess on our carpets. There's no dust on our furniture and our clothes are ready to be folded and put it away, put away simple, simple request. Okay. And so what happens is you leave the note, you make it clear that this is what they are to do. And then you head off to the grocery store. Now, what have you done? You have left instructions. You have revealed what your will is while you're at the grocery store. And to reveal your will, you have used nouns. You have used verbs. You have used adjective ad you know adverbs, sentences with you know punctuation, the whole nine yards. The idea being is, is that you, being an intelligent being, are capable of conveying your will and thoughts on paper using this wonderful God-given thing known as language. You know, this is the idea. Now, when your children arise and begin their day, okay, let's say that the oldest child is kind of clever. You know, junior high kids being what they are, uh, he's decided to engage in some postmodern obfuscation. And, and, and said child says, you know, looks at the note and goes, you know, I'm not really sure what it is that mom or dad meant by this note. Um, this idea of vacuuming the carpets. Uh, what is a vacuum anyways? I mean, space is a vacuum. I mean, do they, they expect us to take the carpets into space? I mean, that's kind of silly, don't you think? And, you know, dusting, dusting. I mean, doesn't scripture say that we're made from dust? I mean, so does, does, does mom and dad expect us to basically remove ourselves from the home because we're made of dust? Um, I mean, I don't understand. I don't understand what it is that's being conveyed here, and 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 uh, laundry, laundry. Ah, uh, man. I mean, this is not a laundromat. This is a home. 
And, and so the, the the idea being is is that none of the uh, the items on the list, the vacuuming, the dusting, or the laundry get done because your oldest child, the junior high kid who's has learned some postmodern word games, denies the ability to understand the note. And so when you get home, do you say, oh, silly me, what was I thinking? Uh, you know, I, you know, revealing my will and words and things like that. Um, yeah, I, I'm so sorry. I mean, it was silly of me to expect that you would understand what it is that I had revealed my will to be with, with you know, using language like that. And it's, that's never going to happen. I mean, I trust me um, that uh, were you to come home from your trip to the grocery store and you would find that not one of the things that you had communicated had actually been accomplished, that uh, you'd be you know, okay with that. Um, uh, let, let's just put it this way, that uh, the children who engaged in such postmodern obfuscation would, well, find themselves in a heap of trouble. Um, deep kimchi, if you're uh, if you're into the Korean phrase. So uh, that being the case, uh, you know the idea is this: is that God has revealed things in the Bible. He has spoken, and He's used words and language. And the way we understand what God has revealed is the same way we understand any written communication. And so, uh, in order to become a good student of the Bible. Uh, you handle the biblical texts the way they were intended to be handled. You know, let me give you another example. Let's go back to this this example of the note and the chores. Okay, um, it, so the idea being is is that uh, let's say that uh, one of your your children, not the oldest, but the next to the youngest, uh, yet next to the oldest, uh, the middle child, who who's been uh, badly influenced by the bad behaviors and. Uh, an attitude of the oldest child decides that they're going to approach your note from the form of mysticism. And so rather than actually read the note to understand what your will is, they've decided that the, what they're going to do is take the first few words of line number one of which you've revealed, and they're going to meditate on it, repeat those words over and over and over again, mantra style, in order to get behind the mystical meaning of what you meant by this note that, you know, where chores were expected to be performed um, by, you know, these children. And so when you come home, the child number one is engaged in postmodern obfuscation, using language games to basically deny that there's any meaning to the note. Uh, child number two then proceeds to explain to you how they mystically experienced their that you know, your parental love for them by meditating on the note. <laughs> you. I don't think you'd be thrilled with a child number two either. Now, if you're one of those parents who has more than 2.2 children, I understand that the national average is like something like 2.2, 2.3. I don't know how you get a point three of a child. But let's just say that you're one of these uh, these um, people who've decided that you're going to have not one child, but two, chi uh, two children, not two, but three, and you had them all pretty closely spaced together. In other words, the youngest child then... Uh, it tries to explain to you that what they really that, that they that as they were reading this they allegorized the uh, the uh, the note in, in order to find their inner champion or some nonsense like that to unleash the power of uh, of uh, of your parental love in their life as a result of this note rather than you know just do what the note explained to do right there on the surface. 
Um, all three of your children at this point um, would be experiencing, well, let's say, um, uh, a uh, a slackening, uh, not a slackening, I'm sorry, a tightening of their privileges. There would be certain privileges like, you know, television or maybe the PlayStation um, or Xbox, whatever is their particular feature, you know, thing, or maybe even the Wii. They would find their privileges to use such devices, let's say, curtailed for a short amount of time, maybe a month or so. And you know, the, the, the idea being is, is that if, if any of your children engaged in such nonsense as to completely avoid the, what it is that you intended to communicate uh, in that note, uh, they'd be in trouble. Well, here's the deal. The same thing applies. The same thing applies in the Christian church. Right now, we are awash with people who think that they're so clever as to engage in postmodern word games with the Bible so that the Bible has no particular meaning. We can't, we can't affirm one meaning or another. Instead, we can just sit here and play these word games in conversation with each other and pat ourselves on the back as to how clever we are in uh, avoiding the point of really clear passages. Or you can, you know, take the, role, the the idea of the second child, and instead what we're going to use, we're going to use the Bible as a talisman, if you would, and engage in mantra meditation to, to avoid wh what it is that it actually says, you know, but use, I mean, it sounds really religious, to use the biblical text in such a way as to, you know, open up our ourselves and ascend into heaven and experience God's presence. You know, that, that's the same thing. Um, and then again, you've got the, uh, the wordplay and the allegorization going on of, you know, f feeling good about yourself, uh, which seems to be the predominant thing that's happening in the seeker driven movement. All of these approaches to the scripture are dead ends. Why? Because it's as if, the people engaging in these methods of biblical misinterpretation, biblical missing the point, um, are denying tacitly or explicitly that God has communicated things in his word that he expects us to believe and do and not do, and that these that God's will can be understood and known. Now they might turn around and say, who are we to say with any certainty that we can understand an infinite God and all I can? We're not saying that. Yeah, by the way, yeah, that's, isn't that the, uh, the popular thing to do nowadays? Sit there and say, oh, who are we to say that we can somehow apprehend the inapprehensible? How can we claim to have, a, uh, to have God in a box so that we can analyze him and understand him? We're not saying that. When somebody says that God's word says X, Y, or Z, they're not claiming to have perfect knowledge of an infinite God. They're claiming that the infinite God has commuted finite, communicated finite information that we can apprehend and know and act on. You, you see what I'm saying? So, um, yeah, if we're going to approach the Bible... We and understand what it means and what God has communicated. Well, we've got to jettison the postmodern word games because that's really all they are are word games, and nobody lives that way in real life anyway. I mean, who goes out there and approaches their banking account? You know, their, their checking account or their savings account from postmodern assumptions that you can't possibly know, uh, you know, the, the, the account balance in your bank account. Nobody does. Okay. And yet they want to approach the Bible that way. Odd.
Hmm. Maybe the reason why they're approaching the Bible that way is to shunt and blunt and deflect what it is that God has revealed there so that their sin isn't exposed and they don't have to repent. They can stay in their sins and and put on some kind of an air of religiosity, if you know what I mean. Second uh, version, I mean, sounds really pious, doesn't it? You know, we're, we're going to take God's word and we're going to meditate on it and repeat it over and over and over and over and empty our minds and, and experience God. That's absolutely just as arrogant as the postmodern guy. Why? Uh, because uh, God's word doesn't say that you can do that with it. Nowhere does it say such a thing. It's just a game that people are playing to create the air of religiosity and piousness and, and spirituality and stuff like that. But these are the things that the uh, pagans do, the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Eastern religions. This is not what God has revealed us for us to be doing with his word in his word. And then the other way, well, that's just narcissism, run amok, allegorizing the text, putting yourself in there and somehow releasing your inner champion and making it all about discovering your purpose. Again, a mishandling of God's word, a mishandling of it that avoids, shunts, blunts, deflects what God has revealed clearly about himself and what we are to believe, to teach, to confess, and to do in the clear teachings of God's word. I know it just sounds so basic, but everything you need to know God's Word, for the most part, you learned in grade school. When you were learning your ABCs, your one, two, threes, your nouns, your adjectives, your adverbs, your verbs, and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, it's true. You want to understand God's Word? Begin with good grammar skills. It'll take you a long way in understanding what God has revealed. Don't play games with the text, because that's what the pagans do. That's a satanic trick designed to obfuscate God's word and deflect what it is that it says, because God's word binds our consciences as to what it is that we should believe and what it is that we should do and what it is that we should not do. And those who are playing games with the biblical text are doing so to their own eternal peril. Absolutely true. Moving along. I'm just going to have to dive into it. I'm not going to talk about what I'm going to talk about at the moment. I have some unfinished business from yesterday anyway. Uh, talk about obfuscation. <clears throat> from the Patricia King XP Media website. Are you looking for a fresh touch of the spirit? Well, hey, you know, Patricia King from XPmedia.com or Extreme Prophetic has got just what you're looking for. And, you know, see if any of this makes any biblical sense. Just before going into this uh, segment, um, our whole studio got together and all of our workers and we were just basking in the glory. And so right now I feel completely drunk in the Holy Ghost. Really? Um, drunk in the Holy Ghost? Hmm. Um, can you point me to any passages in the scripture that talk about basking or baking or soaking or anything like that in the glory? I, you know, I don't recall any passages that talk about that. Hmm. Where'd you get this idea from? And, and, and drunk in the spirit? Hmm. Huh. And I can feel the dew of heaven coming down, and that's what I sense is coming down upon you right now. Yeah, hang on, let me see. 
Nope, I'm not feeling nothing here. No dew from heaven or the glory or anything like that coming down on me. Um, you sure you're hearing this from God? So just lift your hands up into the glory. And okay, I'm lifting my hands up. Um, I'm not seeing any glory up there. Um, how far up is the glory exactly? Is it, you know, because uh, you know, here's the deal. I'm like only like 5'10", so I'm not even six feet tall. Um, I mean, and that being the case, I mean, am I, you know, if, you know, see, if I were taller, do you think my hands could reach the glory? Just close your eyes and just drink of the goodness of God. Jesus said, mm -hmm. if anyone's thirsty, just ask me, just come and receive drink. And right now. Yeah, I don't think he was talking about alcoholic glory beverages, though. Oh, um, you're being filled with a real fresh touch of the spirit of God. Let me see. Um, No. Not, I'm feeling nothing here, uh, Patricia. Not a thing. The dew of heaven, the essence of God's presence is coming down upon you. It is? Now. No? And nothing. I feel like the Lord's saying that, that uh, you're going to accelerate in your ability to receive uh, revelation from the Lord. That yeah, I'm going to accelerate in my ability. Um. Yeah, since I have no ability um, whatsoever, I mean, isn't zero times zero zero or zero times one still zero? Even if I were to accelerate to zero times 50, you know, I'd still be at like zero. Fresh manna from heaven. You know, um, I see someone who's been very faithful with reading the word of God every day yeah. in the scriptures. Yeah. But you've been missing that real rhema word. Well, in the name. Uh -huh. Yeah, see, you know, notice here what she's doing here. Yeah, <laughs> you've been faithful reading God's word, but now, you know, you've been missing out on the other thing. You know, that direct, just plug your fingers into the wall socket of God's glory and, uh, and you know, and experience the shock and awe of God's raw glory right there and do and all that kind of stuff. Um, yeah, uh, Bible doesn't teach this. But you've been missing that real rhema word. Well, in the name of Jesus Christ, I loose the power of that rhema to you right now. Yeah, feeling nothing. Boy, yeah, your loosing skills may not be so good. And I believe you're going to start getting that real, real beautiful, precious word of the Lord coming to your heart. Uh -huh. Directly uh, to your heart with no pages and grammar needed, apparently. And uh, you're just going to love it. So get your journal ready because it's going to come big time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you gotta got to write the stuff down so you can tack it on to the end of your Bible, apparently. I also see a woman who's getting um, recipes in the glory. It's like you're, I just see you in the presence of God. So God's sharing baking tips with some of you women out there. That's amazing, you know, uh, heavenly recipes. God, and all of a sudden he's giving you recipes for delicious meals. And um, I don't know if the- Glory meals, who knew, you know? Ingredients. You know, you can get drunk and have a glory meal all at the same time, wow. The answer is somewhat symbolic or, or, or prophetic or just he likes to cook with you. But um, it's someone who loves- to He walks with me and talks with me and shares recipes with me uh, along life's narrow way he cooks he cooks yeah anyway. to cook and god's gonna download fresh recipes to you in the glory realm yeah <sighs> this is crazy yeah so that's a uh, vintage patricia king from just a day ago yeah and what is this a complete obfuscation of god's word 
Notice the emphasis. Oh, stop. You know, you're just missing out. Because God isn't speaking directly to your heart and you don't have all these, you know, I mean, can you imagine how relevant and cool that would be to, you know, to have God download recipes from heaven to you and, and to, you know, cover you in glory do and things like that? Um, hmm, yeah, but to see, uh, I, I trust God's word. I don't trust Patricia King at all. Why on earth should I believe this woman is hearing anything from God when she twists God's word, takes the focus off of God's word, undermines God's word in exchange for these silly, silly, silly so-called spiritual experiences? Yeah, I'll believe that she's experiencing the Holy Spirit when she can cough the feathers up. You, you, you understand what I'm saying? Anyway, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Broadcasting from his mother's basement while in a beanbag eating Cheetos. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Church would like to apologize to all of our listeners. Normally, we do parody here at Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances in the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit. And we saw 12 people heal the word of knowledge and 40 healed during the Holy Ghost hokey pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that and see what the Lord does. You guys okay to do a little Holy Ghost hokey pokey? Can you lead it? All right, Brian's going to lead us in the Holy Ghost hokey pokey. Are you kidding? Put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. You put your right hand in. Your right hand now, you put it in and you shake it and you shake it all about. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put it in and you shake it and you shake it all about. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. Oh, you put your left foot in, put your left foot out. You put your left foot in, you put your left foot 
Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. All right, we're back. Uh, warning, people who are telling you that God wants you to experience glory clouds, drunken the spirit, all that kind of weird stuff, um, they're not rightly handling God's word. They're deceiving you. you got to run from them. Uh, just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us financially by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. And when you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And of course, if you would like to specify the amount 
amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. From the uh, Florida Courier at flcourier.com, headline reads, uh, Really final Paula White update with links. White apologizes to Florida rabbi, Florida Courier, publisher after scroll wrapping video surfaces. Okay, now, kind of long and involved, and and rather than reading every little uh, story that kind of led up to this particular one in the Florida Courier, Let's just put it this way, okay? The Florida Florida Courier a while ago, in fact, uh, just before the Super Bowl, released a news story, uh, broke a story on the internet uh, regarding rumors that Paula White may uh, be coronated and crowned queen, uh, Eddie Longstyle by Rabbi Messer. And uh, and, and so this broke uh, during Super Bowl weekend, and Paula White sprung into action in order to, uh, um, let's just say, uh, block any potential damage that may have may come. Because I, I think by that time, the Eddie Long story had hit a, a, a stride and it was clear that anybody engaging in that kind of craziness was going to suffer the wrath of the general public and criticism like you wouldn't believe. The last thing Paula White would want to have go viral is, you know... Yeah, you know, her being crowned queen. So th- that's kind of the setup to this. And so I'm going to read to you this story uh, written by the Florida Courier, and um, and they have an editor's notes. This version of the story that appears in the Florida Florida Courier newspaper uh, distributed statewide links have been added. So they've added links. So if you actually want to see this, you go to Florida uh, flcourier.com, flcourier.com. And uh, and uh, you can look in their search box for really final Paula White update, and it'll take you to the story itself. So um, this is written by the Florida Courier staff. Florida-based televangelist Paula White submitted a written apology to Orlando-area rabbi Ira Michelson and the Florida Courier publisher Charles W. Cherry II after a video surfaced that showed Paula White participating in a scroll wrapping, and it was considered repulsive and inappropriate by some Jewish religious scholars. Now, listen, I, I, until the whole uh, Eddie Long thing, and when he was crowned king, and then he abdicated the throne, I, I had never heard of scroll wrapping. I mean, it. You know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, I'm wondering if it's going to take off like, you know, planking or something, you know, one of those weird Internet sensations. But, um, you know, it's, it's weird. I mean, before this, I had only heard of things like lettuce wraps or pita wraps or, you know, things like that, you know, where you know, fast food companies are are trying to sell healthy foods that are wraps, you know. But uh, scroll wrapping, never even heard of that. And uh <laughs> And, and so what's interesting about the story is is that this begins at the end where Paula White submits an apology because she had initially, um, well, let me continue reading. The video itself surfaced just hours after Paula White's attorney, Daniel uh, Beirut, categorically and unconditionally denied White's involvement in such an act. Okay. So let me continue reading. Paula White's rapping 
That's W-R-A-P-P-I-N-G, not rapping as in like, you know, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So uh, Paula White's rapping with the W, allegedly symbolic of being wrapped in the word of God, according to erstwhile rabbi, in quotes, Ralph Messer on the video is almost identical to Messer's rapping of New Birth Missionary Baptist Church's The Reverend Eddie Long during a controversial and controversial and widely ridiculed ceremony that went viral on YouTube last week. Criticism of Long was swift and severe from Jewish religious scholars in the Anti-Defamation League, forcing Long to publicly apologize. <clears throat> Can I point something out here? Um, um, where was all of the outcry from Christian religious scholars? Um yeah, because yeah, yeah, Eddie Long apologized to the Jewish community, but he hasn't apologized to the body of Christ. Same thing going on here. Paula White has apologized to a rabbi, and has apologized to you know uh, Jewish scholars and and the like. But um, no, no uh, apology whatsoever to Christian biblical scholars. Or anybody of that, you know, of, of that caliber. Anyway, White is now the pastor of New Destiny Christian Center, founded by the late Zachary Timms. New Destiny is one of Central Florida's largest churches. She is also pastor of Without Walls International, one of Tampa's largest churches. It's interesting that she uh, she took the <clears throat> pastoral position. By the way, there's no such thing uh, in Scripture as a female pastor. Uh, pastrix is a, you know, it's not a biblical category, but, uh, when she took the job of pastoring New Destiny Christian Center by, you know, because Zachary Timms died last year, um, she didn't resign as pastrix of Without Walls International. So she, it looks like she's kind of doing the multi-site thing there. Anyway, so here's how it all started. On Friday afternoon, February 3rd, the West Orlando News Online reported, quote, Rumors that Rabbi Messer would be in Orlando over the weekend to crown uh, Pastrix. Yeah, it says pastor, but there's no such thing as a female pastor. To crown Pastrix Paula White the new leader of the New Destiny Christian Center and to crown her as queen. So on February 3rd, the West Orlando uh, News reported the story. So at 6 p.m. that Friday evening, just after the Florida Courier broke a story on the Internet addressing rumors of White's possible coronation on Super Bowl Sunday, Messer became the focus of discussion on Orlando's WEUS AM 810, a local talk radio station. The host, Don Miller of, of the Don Miller Show, harshly criticized both Long and Messer. One of the featured guests on the show was Rabbi Michelson of the Beth Tefillah Congregation in Clement that's just outside of Orlando. So, about 10 minutes into the broadcast, Miller confirmed that he had heard rumors that Messer was coming to Orlando to do this, another Eddie Long-style coronation at another church. In response, Rabbi Michelson said, quote, he actually already did this to Paula White some years ago. This was after she was divorced from Randy White and before the scandal with Benny Hinn came out. He took her and wrapped her in a scroll and said the same thing. I'm wrapping you in the word of God. The Florida Courier updated its Internet story with Michelson's quote. 
So Saturday morning. In multiple phone calls and emails to Cherry, Daniel Beirut, Paula White's attorney, unconditionally denied that White would be coronated as was Long. In response to Rabbi Michelson's quoted allegation, Beirut wrote in an email to Cherry, quote, I don't know where Rabbi Michelson gets his information, but my client categorically and unequivocally denies that ever happened. So based on White's unconditional denial, the Florida Courier editors decided that there was no longer a story and posted a story called Final Paula White Update with Links, including White's denial. But that was not to be the last word. Rabbi Michelson, uh, concerned that White's denial damaged his reputation, emailed a video to Cherry that corroborated his statement about White. The video opens up with various instances in which an energetic Paula White picks up or drops Bibles on the floor while preaching. About 36 seconds into the video, a caption appears. Notice the Bible on the floor. There's more video of White preaching, speaking in tongues, and then dropping more Bibles. About two minutes into the video, another caption appears. If Paula had thrown the Quran to the floor, she would have faced certain death. The Jews rejected her from speaking at the 2007 Day of Prayer because of the following sacrilege to their sacred scrolls, it states. So then, in an undated broadcast that seems to be recorded from White's TV show, Paula, uh, White agrees to allow Rabbi Messer another unidentified and another unidentified man to wrap White in what appears to be a Torah scroll. After saying the wrapping represents protection and being hidden in the word of God, Messer tells White out of something that was thrown off of the tracks, like your, uh, like your life, God says, I'm going to raise it up and people will read from it and quote it for generations. Messer then says to White, the Lord says you are so sacred to the body of Christ. I'm wrapping you in the word of God. The scroll seems to be torn in pieces. White appears to be overcome with emotion and then happily shakes Messer's hand. After sending a copy of the video to Cherry, uh, Rabbi Michelson emailed White's lawyer. Quote, I have consulted my own attorney who is well versed in copyright law, and it's clear that by your statements, you are questioning the veracity of my comments on the Don Miller show. Quote, when challenged by you and Paula White, I produced the proof. As an attorney, you must be fully aware that producing a short clip from a TV show is not copyright infringement. Furthermore, there is no defamation involved as what I said is true. In spite of your client's comments to the contrary, Rabbi Michelson wrote, Please be, advise your client that if any further attempts are made to question my comments and my integrity, I will seek to protect my good name. I do not like having my integrity challenged. So the video Cherry saw was removed from YouTube Saturday night due to a copyright claim by Paula White Ministries. According to YouTube, however, the Florida Courier reporters found a leaked uh, link to a shortened version of that video and posted it on the Florida Courier website. Then a written apology came to Rabbi Michelson and Cherry a day later. To Michelson, Beirut wrote, quote, on behalf of pastor, <clears throat> sorry, 
Pastrix, Paula White, please accept our apology. There was no intention to personally offend you or to attack your integrity. We were attempting to respond to the allegations made by others that Pastor White would be or had been coronated or enthroned, as some say Bishop Long was. As the rapping, as to the rapping, I was not aware that this had happened and Pastor White had forgotten about the incident. Uh, to Cherry, Beirut wrote, Guess what? Much to my embarrassment, it turns out that I was incorrect when I said that Pastor White had never been wrapped in a scroll. The email also included what Beirut wrote was a note from White. And in her note, she said, quote, In attending to respond to rumors on Saturday, I informed my attorney that I had never been wrapped in a Torah scroll. This was my sincere recollection at the time. However, it has now been pointed out to me that my recollection was wrong and that, in fact, a Torah scroll was placed around my shoulders when I conducted an in-studio interview on my television show a few years ago. This was a prayer of blessing offered by the guest, not a coronation or enthronement. Nevertheless, I apologize for not vetting this more carefully before responding. Our primary objective was and still is to deny the baseless claim that NDCC was hosting a coronation service for me. Furthermore, I desired and desire to distance myself from any controversy as I have already had my share. My ministry is moving in a new direction, and that and that and I am very excited about that. My focus is on pursuing that purpose to which the Lord has called me to fulfill. I serve and glorify the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. Um Cherry responded to the apology by asking White when Messer appeared on her show whether he had previously spoken in any church she pastors and whether Messer's background had been investigated prior to his appearance on her show. Neither Beirut nor White responded as of the Florida Courier's press time on Wednesday. So there you go. Uh, kind of interesting. Paula White uh, quickly acting to basically put down any rumors or allegations that she was to be coronated and crowned queen herself. I mean, you know, Eddie Long style, if you would, and even went so far as to denying any connection with Rabbi Messer, only to, uh, well, embarrassingly discover that, well, uh, she was, she had Rabbi Messer on her program a few years ago. Apparently she couldn't recall it, and he wrapped her in a scroll. She, uh, he, uh, he, he did a scroll wrapping on her. In fact, here's the audio from that particular ceremony from Paula White's program from a few years back. Won't you welcome Rabbi Ralph Messer? God bless you. So good to have Amen. you with us. Boy, I could sit with you in the Word forever. Amen. Divine appointments yes. was something that God set in order for us to understand and to not live under the legalism. It's a right. celebration Amen. of who God is and what God's done. And when you celebrate and apply the instruction or habits or commands and laws of God, you have yes. results in your life. Yes, exactly. Well, it was preordained from the earth. Uh, foundations of the earth that you would receive the Torah and so today we're going to make history on this on this broadcast talking about that with you face the, the camera Paula if you'll just stand up right now and turn and face the camera we want to do something with you to your listeners right now we're going to wrap a scroll around you would you mind no. this is whole, so sacred if you'll raise it up high in the air all right 
We're going to wrap the scroll around you, and the scroll around you that we wrap around you is symbolic how God has right now protected your life. You are hidden in the Word of God. You are hidden in the Torah, God's teaching and instruction. There is nothing that can, absolutely nothing, Paula, in your life that will ever, ever, ever touch you. Now, as God opens up the Word of God to you, He opens up the Lamb's Book of Life. Yeah, they, they, they just, Rabbi, uh, Rabbi Messer there, Eddie Long style, wrapped Paula White, uh, prior to Eddie Long's coronation, wrapped her in a scroll, and uh, now she's all misty-eyed and, you know, and wiping tears from her face, you know, apparently, you know, because of the importance of this particular thing. I mean, it, here's the deal. I mean, if uh, how could you go through a scroll wrapping like this, get all teary-eyed about it and, you know, wipe tears from your eyes and then not be able to recall that you had done this? Weird. Which you were written in the midst of, and God said, out of this, out of what something that was thrown off the tracks, like your life, God says, I'm going to raise it up, and people are going to read from it and quote it for generations. And here you are, in the midst of a Torah school. You know the rarity in the synagogues, Paula. These are held in, under eternal lights in arcs, and you're taking a finger of God, and we touch them because they're so sacred to us. What does the Lord do today? He says, you're so sacred to the body of Christ, I'm wrapping you in the Word of God. Yeah, so apparently God saying said to Paula White a few years ago via Rabbi Master, you're so sacred to the body of Christ, I'm going to wrap you in a scroll. It's a new beginning, a new Passover, your Passover from the past to the future, and you're blessed of God. Amen? Amen. <laughs> hmm Yeah, Um. boy, that's uh, kind of an embarrassing story there. And uh, may I point out uh, that uh, that uh, wrapping people in a Torah scroll was not why God had the uh, His Word recorded for us. Um, this is just absolute nonsense and a mishandling, misapplication, misreading, and uh, complete uh, obfuscation of God's Word. All right, one more story before we uh, take our second break, and then we'll be doing our sermon review. And uh, this comes to us via Albert Muller's website. And the name of the uh, the, sto- uh, the blog post is Torah and Truth, Theology in the Obituary Pages. Albert Muller writes, Theological lessons appear in the most unexpected places. The February 12, 2012 edition of the New York Times included an obituary for Rabbi W. Gunther Plout, who died February 8th in Toronto at the age of 99. The obituaries in the New York Times are legendary, rivaled only by those in the Times of London. Both papers feature unexpectedly lengthy obituaries devoted to those who made a difference in their times. Rabbi Plout was one of those figures. <clears throat> As Margaret Fox of the Times explained, the rabbi was one of the most influential figures in Reform Judaism, North America's Judaism's most liberal major branch. As Fox stated, Rabbi Plout was a rabbi whose vast scholarly and ardently contemporary edition of the Torah has helped define Reform Judaism in the late 20th century in North America. Rabbi Plout's commentary on the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, was the, quote, first non-Orthodox full commentary on the Torah published in English for congregational use, said Rabbi Daniel H. Freelander, an official with the Union for Reform Judaism. Previous to Rabbi Plout's work on the Torah, congregations had been dependent on the work of Rabbi Joseph M. Hertz, 
written from the perspective of Orthodox Judaism, affirming the divine inspiration of the text as given through Moses. Reformed Judaism does not require any belief in a personal God, and many adherents are agnostics or atheists in terms of traditional theism. <laughs> what? <laughs> Let me read. <laughs> oh, wow. Let me read that sentence again. <clears throat> Reformed Judaism does not require any belief in a personal God. What's the point of being Jewish if you don't believe in um, Yahweh? Okay, um, so Reformed Judaism does not require any belief in a personal God, and many adherents are agnostics or atheists in terms of traditional theism. Rabbi Plout wrote his commentary on the Torah for this movement and its congregations. And in the introduction to the work, he stated what he believed about the Bible. Quote, God is not the author of the text. The people are. But God's voice may be heard through theirs if we listen with open minds. <laughs> Sounds like he was the Brian McLaren of Judaism. Wow. Anyway, <clears throat> with those words, Rabbi Plout honestly stated what he believed about the Bible and specifically about the Torah. God is not the author of the text. The Bible, uh, the text was not divinely revealed to Moses nor to anyone else. The Torah was the literary achievement of the Jews. God's voice, quote, may be heard through theirs if we listen with open minds. That's an amazing statement, and it may even shock some readers who are unaware of the fact that many people consider the Bible to be nothing more than a human book. In the secular academy and among liberal Bible scholars, the Old Testament is increasingly referred to as an example of, quote, ancient Near Eastern literature. The rabbi's statement is not merely indicative of Reformed Judaism, but of the belief about the Bible held within liberal Christianity. Rabbi Plout's words are hauntingly reminiscent of the arguments offered by Rudolf Bultmann, the most influential liberal New Testament scholar of the 20th century. Here we see the great dividing line, the line that divides those who affirm the Bible as the inspired word of God and those who see the Bible as a human product. Everything flows from where one stands with respect to this line, and no one can avoid taking a stand. Sometimes the most urgent issues in theology show up where you least expect them. Well, then again, uh, maybe the obituaries serve us well by reminding us by their very nature about what matters. So Rabbi Plout went to his grave not believing in God, but somehow holding on to the concept of Judaism. Strange, there's a lot of people doing the same thing in Christianity, too. Um, they don't seem to have anything in common with Christianity at all. To deny that the Bible is the Word of God is to deny that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Word made flesh. To deny that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Savior of the world, the Word made flesh, is to deny that, well, that you're a sinner in need of a Savior. Uh, to deny that Jesus Christ lived, bled, and died, and rose again for your sins and for your justification. And when you go to your grave, believing that, even if you live to 99, when the New York Times writes your obituary, um, it'll serve as a cautionary tale for those who truly have faith. Because going to your grave believing that, well, you may as well be a new atheist. All right, we're up on our second break. When we come back, we're going to be doing a sermon review. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition 
or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... Listening to Byron Christian Radio. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseboro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code and then click on the banner and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. Okay, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith Sermon Review Time. I did not say what we're going to be doing on this program. I've just been walking through it. Kind of focused today. All right, here we go. The good, the bad, and the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's <clears throat> sermon comes to us via Destination Church in Chicago. Matt Sweetman presiding. The name of the sermon series, by the way, is Determination 101. Determination? Uh, the name of the sermon in the series is entitled Find Focus. Okay. So supposedly this is a biblical teaching about uh, determination and finding focus. Um, 
yeah, I got a pro- <clears throat> I got a problem. Raising my hand here. Um, pick me, pick me. Uh, yeah, um, where in the Bible are the great doctrines of determination and finding focus? I mean, this sounds like, uh, you know, kind of one of those life tip kind of things, you know, relevant, you know, life-changing, life-change type sermony stuff. But um, as a careful student of God's Word, I'm not exactly sure where you would go to find... Uh, well, a clear biblical teaching about the need for determination and finding focus. These are kind of um, modern concepts, if you know what I mean. Not only that, they, they, they have to do with self-management and, you know, you know things like that. I don't know. We'll see what happens. Uh, let me kill the music here. So without any further ado, here is Matt Sweetman and his sermon entitled Determination 101. Find focus. Here we go. Good morning, everybody. Welcome again to Destination Church, especially if this is your first or second time. We love having our guests here, so thank you for taking the risk of being with us. Um, we're in our Determination 101 series. Last week, we kicked it off with uh, prioritized practice, and we looked at what does the Scripture teach us uh, about living a life of practice, what's the importance of that, and we looked at the perfected life of Jesus, how he never made any mistakes, he had Per, the most perfectly practiced life, and that it is because Jesus had the most perfectly practiced life. Right. This is important theology, by the way, um, because his sinless life was uh, sacrificed on the cross in exchange for yours. You, you get what I'm saying? When you, when somebody's brought to repentance and faith and trust in Christ, Jesus's perfect sinless life is imputed to them. God sees them clothed in the righteousness of Christ. This is important stuff. Um, and you, you turn it into kind of all about, you know, living a, a practiced life. Because of that, that we can be righteous before God. Right, right. And if you missed that week, you can uh, recap that. That's on our website. And then today we're starting uh, week two, Find Focus. And you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4, starting in verse 6. Before I get there, let me just say a couple of things. Uh, there's, there's two people, special people in the church here that I want to thank. Um, they have no idea I'm going to do this, so I thoroughly embarrass them probably. Uh, but two very faithful members of the church who have opened up their home, um, just constantly opening up their home uh, to host different things and just serve faithfully. And just they're just pillars in the church. They've been Over the last couple of years, really been people that have helped us build the church, get us to the church to this point. So I wanted to thank uh, Alan and Chris and Goad. We love. Let's give them a big clap. I don't know where they are. They're back there. I probably totally thoroughly embarrassed them, but we love you guys so much, and we're just so grateful for you. So I just wanted you to know that. <laughs> I want everybody to know that too. Um, I also have um, some exciting news, but also a prayer request. Uh, we have another birth in the church, which is exciting. Uh, Ryan and Jillian Malquest had a little baby girl, Zella, uh, Zella May. She was born on the, on the 19th. Uh, she was premature, so she uh, weighed in at five pounds, five ounces. And uh, she's a beautiful little girl. You need to be praying for her. She's actually still in the hospital. Uh, she was born with, because she was premature, obviously uh, problems with breathing. You know, the lungs developed last, and so uh, she's getting, getting low oxygen supply, things like that. So pray for that. Also, she was born with a hole in her heart. Uh, the doctors are hopeful that that will heal. Um, and uh, she's in capable hands at the hospital. But it's quite an emotional thing, of course, for Ryan and Jillian as well. So be praying for them and uh, be praying especially for Zella's healing. And you all listening to this, you should be praying for Zella and her healing. And uh, she also had severe jaundice, so she's been under that light thing for a long, long time. So 
I can't imagine as a parent not being able to bring a child home uh, from the hospital, but she's a beautiful uh, daughter of God, and we need to pray that she's totally healed and, and uh, that God's with Ryan and Julian. And they're doing really well with this, by the way. So, but please be praying for them, supporting them, if you know them any way you can. Okay, let's switch gears here, and I get into this uh, today. Last week, we looked at how pretty much we all hate mediocrity, and we would like to destroy mediocrity in our lives. We looked at the issue of self-discipline, that the Bible promotes discipline, the world wants to be disciplined, but it's really hard, right? And uh... Yeah, hate mediocrity, yeah, that's, Christianity is all about solving the mediocrity problem in the world. Uh, keep in mind, uh, mediocrity would be one of the negative consequences of our sinful, fallen nature. So if we're going to discuss mediocrity, I think we should be discussing it in light of sin. Uh, what we have to learn throughout this whole series, I want us to get this idea that, yeah, sure, we want determination, we want self-discipline, but, you know, you could strive your whole life and be the most disciplined person and achieve enormous things. You could be an achiever goal-driven person who, who makes enormous amounts of money and if the foundation of your life isn't Jesus Christ, it is all worthless and it will just perish at the end of your life. And so the foundation... This is true. Absolutely true. I mean, you think of somebody who's as disciplined at their craft as Tiger Woods has been over the past decade or so. Um, okay, yeah, alright. The foundation to all of this is God, is who we are in Christ and everything flows from that. The challenge for us as believers and just as people in this culture is that there are competing demands upon our time and our attention. Maybe you try and multitask. I know, I know many people who claim to be really good at multitasking. little secret here, multitasking doesn't work. The only way to be productive is actually to focus on one thing at a time. But we're in a culture that tries to do multiple things simultaneously. Many of us are unfocused. So since this is coming from a pastor, if you're a multitasker, uh, my question is, are you sinning? Since the pastor's teaching this, the multitasking doesn't work, and he's preaching this from the pulpit, should we conclude then that somebody who's multitasking is, well, not making God happy, in fact, is sinning against what God has wanted them to do, you know, to not be mediocre? So multitasking bad, multitasking sin, it's a fair question. We continue. Focused, scatterbrained, interrupted, and constantly distracted. The a result of this is that it derails our attempts to be consistent, not just in God, but in many things in our lives, things that are important to us. Our relationship with God suffers and other areas of our lives. And here's the big idea I want to share with you today. I want you to drive this home. I want you to go home with this idea in your mind. Focus determines the future focus determines the future um i feel like this is a lesson i learned from mr miyagi from the uh, you know the original um uh, um karate kid movies you remember uh, pat morita playing the uh, the role of of mr miyagi um telling a young daniel son uh, you know he must focus and, uh, yeah, of course, if he doesn't focus, he, and the, this is the context of learning karate. He said, you either karate do or karate don't. No karate maybe because karate maybe gets you squish. You know, I, that's my best <clears throat> Mr. Miyagi impersonation. Um, yeah, I learned this from the karate kid. Um, do you have any biblical passages 
that teach this important need for us, you know, to um, about focus determining the future. Uh, you know, again, this seems like a self-help category, not a Bible category. Um, the job of a pastor is to preach the word. Kind of sad that we haven't started off this sermon with a biblical text. Maybe that's on purpose. Focus determines the future. And you might say, is that even biblical? Let me share with you Hebrews 12. It says, let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let me read to you. Let me... Uh, yeah, out of context there. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Uh, if you have your Bible, flip on over to Hebrews chapter 11. Um, there are three rules for sound biblical uh, exegesis, if you would. And those three were, rules are context, context, and context. So the question that's before us at the moment, we're going to just test this by applying our three simple rules of sound biblical interpretation. By the way, those three rules clear up just about 90 to 95% of all Bible twisting. I mean, serious. I mean, it's like, uh, you know, penicillin for bad Bible twisting. Um, here, here's the idea. In Hebrews chapter 12, um, verse 2, was the reason why God the Holy Spirit inspired those sentences, those words to be penned. By the way, if you're wondering uh, who wrote the uh, the book of Hebrews, we're not sure. Um, my personal hunch, and then that's literally all it is, my personal hunch is that uh, it's Pauline. Uh, the reason I say that is just because in working in the biblical text in the original language, I notice some of the same themes and some of the same grammatical constructions by that the Apostle Paul uses in his other epistles in uh, in Hebrews. But the the fact is, we don't know who wrote it. Um, um, so just something to keep in mind. But um, <clears throat> so the question is, is the reason why the Apostle, whoever wrote this, um, is the reason why God the Holy Spirit had this penned, uh, verse 2, uh, to teach us that focus determines the future. Okay, now I had you open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter eleven. Why? Because Hebrews chapter eleven gives us the context from which we are to understand chapter twelve. And I'm going to start at Hebrews chapter eleven, verse one. Now, faith—that's trust. Faith and trust in Christ is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things that are not seen. For by faith, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he shall not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning the events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. 
By this he commended, oh, sorry, condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has its foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand." By the seashore. All of these died, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which he figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses... When he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, they were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith... Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, of Barak, of Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release 
so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something far better for us, that apart from us they should be made perfect. Therefore, now we're in chapter 12, therefore. So the therefore connects chapter 12, verse 1, with all of what was said before this. In the immediate context, we're talking about faith. This is the great hall of faith. Who All these people, they did these amazing things by faith, including stopping the mouths of lying lions and being sawn in two, of having people brought back from the dead and those being killed and martyred for their faith. By faith, they did such amazing things. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, a cloud of witnesses of what? Of those who did these things by faith. Not by focus, not by determination, but by faith. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. Now, I'm going to point something out here. Okay, In uh, Hebrews chapter 2, where it talks about Jesus being the founder and perfecter of our faith, um, the, uh, the, Gre- the Greek word there, um, archegon, okay, this there's so much more than just founder going on here and uh other translations might say the author and the perfecter of our faith even that kind of misses it okay archegon really has as this understanding that it, you you have to think in antiquity this is somebody who is a hero this is somebody who is a pioneer somebody who forges ahead into uncharted territory conquers uh, a region single-handedly and then builds a fortress to bring others in and protect them i mean that's what really is going on with the concept of the greek word archegon so we talk about jesus being our archegon our the author and perfecter of our faith understand that this is a this is a word that is packed packed with the theological significance and you don't you don't want to you know someone in the ancient world would see this word and go whoa that's some jesus you got there okay exactly so looking to so let me back up again chapter 12 verse 1 remember that the key here is not focus it's not determination it's faith and what is faith faith is trust it is trust and confidence in the things that we hope for but do not see. Jesus, when uh, when uh, he appeared in the upper room and Thomas had missed the original meeting, um, and Thomas said, I'm not going to believe unless I put my hand, you know, my fingers in his side and touch the, you know, touch the wounds, right? So Jesus, when he appears to Thomas, he says to him, Thomas, look, it's me. Stop doubting. See, touch me. See and believe. And it, it does, the text doesn't say that Thomas actually touches him. But it says that Thomas at that point says to Jesus, 
um, you know, Hakurios mu kaihatheos mu. You are my Lord and my God. And Jesus says to Thomas, you believe because you have seen me. But blessed is he who has not seen and yet believes. Okay, so that's that's a great cross reference here to Hebrews 11. Faith is being sure and certain of what we hope for, you know, you know, certain of what we don't see. We've never met Jesus. We are completely dependent upon the eyewitnesses to his life, his death, his resurrection and his teaching to what it is that he said, did and accomplished. Uh, having never seen Jesus, we have our, we, we can have sure and certain hope and faith and trust in him through the eyewitness accounts, through the apostolic teaching that comes to us in Scripture. And this is what this is all referring to and pointing to and developing and you know, and really trying to get us to focus on here. So therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all of these people, Old and New Testament, uh, Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, they all accomplished the things that they did by faith, by their trust and confidence in the unseen God, right? Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight sin which clings so closely let us run with endurance endurance the race that is set before us looking to jesus the archegon and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of god consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons my son do not regard lightly the discipline of the lord nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves, and he chastises everyone whom he receives. Good word here. Good biblical teaching. But here, Matt Sweetman is referencing Hebrews 12.2 out of context. Makes me wonder if this is a misreading, of uh, a misapplication, misunderstanding, um, misuse of this text. Because this text is being used by Matt Sweetman to focus us on the importance of determination and help us find focus. But this is a passage that teaches us the importance of faith and trust and confidence in our archegon, Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Let me back this up just a little bit. We continue. Share with you Hebrews 12. It says, let us run with endurance the race set before us looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. Let me read to you, let me pray and then let me read the scripture to you. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you lived a perfect life. We thank you, Lord, that even though we're not able to be perfect, you qualify us to have a relationship with you. You credit to us all of your goodness. And uh, Lord, I just pray this morning. Now, this is nice hearing about the imputed righteousness from a seeker driven guy. Nice. Morning that you would help us, you would convict us of our sluggishness and our laziness and of our disobedience to you and that you would help us trust you and follow you and run after you and to keep our eyes fixed on you Lord, that we wouldn't go out of bounds we wouldn't go out of out of our track but we would run the race with endurance i pray for that today lord if there's anybody here that doesn't know you anybody here who's far from you somebody who's fallen away or 
or they've actually never gotten to the point of really surrendering to you, I just pray today that your Holy Spirit and that your word rest upon their heart, Lord, that they would find faith in you and that they would build their life on the rock and not on the sand. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to read uh, verses 6 through 9 of Philippians chapter 4. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is... Okay, bad sign, bad sign. You read Hebrews 12, 2 out of context, and now we're starting in Philippians in chapter 4. Now, let's go back to the metaphor I used early on in the program today. Okay, that would be the metaphor of the note that you leave for your children as you go shopping on a, you know, and you expect them to accomplish some chores. Here's the deal. When you leave a note or you write a letter, do you expect people to pick up the letter and just read the last few words, the last few sentences, the last paragraph, and just ignore the front end of it? Of course not. Why is it that so many seeker-driven churches, their pastors, when they start when they read from the book of Romans always start at chapter 12 not at chapter 1 why is it when they quote philippians uh, they start at chapter 4 but they ignore chapters 1 2 and 3 this is no way to study god's word this is a mishandling of the text is anything worthy of praise think about these things what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now let me read the first half of verse 6 again and start there. Do not be anxious about anything. There's a reason the Apostle Paul has to write these words, do not be anxious about anything, because people are anxious about many, many things. We could come up with a long list of things that we're all anxious about. But there's no wiggle room in this verse, right? I mean, this is a pretty absolute statement. There's no fine print. There's not another verse you could find in the Bible that would say, oh, by the way, when he said that, there's actually two things you're allowed to be a little worried about. There's like, you know, there's a couple of things in there you didn't really realize you're allowed to be really, you know, quite concerned and anxious about. This is a broad statement that applies to anything and everything at any time, no matter what. That's a tall order, isn't it? Do not be anxious about anything. Now, many people are worried about the future. Many people will say to me, or they'll write on their prayer request each week, they'll say, you know, help me discern God's will. Help me to know the future. Help me know what God's plan is, what I should do. I'm concerned, anxious. I want to know what's coming next. And my response to that is, sure, I'll pray for you. Sure, I'll even counsel you. As much as I can help you, as much as I understand the scripture and understand your life, I will help you, I pray, pray for you. But oh, by the way, don't forget what God has already said to you. Because you know, we get stuck in these things in our minds. Where we're saying, I wish God would tell me about this. I wish I could do this. I wish this would happen. I wish my life could be this way. I wish I could have this situation or this circumstance. I wish things could have gone a different way. 
So if only God would speak to me clearly and let me know. People think that way, and they say that, and they request prayer like that. That's not wrong to request prayer like that, but here's what we forget. We forget that God has already said something very clear to us. It is in plain sight. But we sometimes act as if it isn't there. The scripture says, do not be anxious about anything. Yeah, I want to point something out. He's doing the same thing with Philippians 4 that he did with Hebrews 12. You have your Bible, flip on over to Philippians chapter 3. Let's do a little biblical teaching here. Let's add a little context, okay? By the way, um, Philippians 2, fantastic Christological chapter. Amazing chapter. Um, just let me point it out by way of highlight, okay? Um, if you, uh, if, when you read Philippians chapter 2, uh, there's this wonderful hymn that's recorded for us, ancient first century Christian church hymn that gets it put into the biblical text. Um, <clears throat> Philippians chapter 2, uh, verse 3, do nothing from selfishness, uh, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking up a form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the, the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, it's important to note here that uh, the Apostle uh, Paul here is actually quoting from the Old Testament. Um, let me see if I got the verse here. Uh, so the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven on earth. Yeah, Isaiah chapter 45. This is, this is great stuff. So in the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is taken from Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23. But I'll, you know, here's what it says. By myself I have sworn... From my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. Uh, to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance, every tongue confess. Um, by the way, who's speaking there in verse 23? Uh, it's the Lord God, Yahweh. And so uh, here this passage in uh, in Philippians chapter 2 tells us about Jesus Christ. And because uh, a, te a biblical text that's, uh, that's where God, Yahweh, is speaking and says he's going to, every knee shall bow to him, this text at Philippians chapter 2 makes it very clear that Jesus is God. He's the one true God. He's the Yahweh of the Old Testament in human flesh. Just amazing. Great passage. Good stuff. Why isn't he preaching about that? Anyway. <clears throat> But then talking about Jesus' death on the cross and warning us about uh, the Judaizers, those who are mixing law and gospel, the Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, 
Well, I have more. So if you think you you have reason to put confidence in your self-righteousness, your flesh, your, your fleshly obedience? <laughs> well, listen to this litany from the Apostle Paul. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness under the law, faultless, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them, all of his good works under Judaism, and count them as rubbish. It's actually a lot stronger in the Greek. It Just think of um, a, a dog bomb on your lawn, and that's what this is referring to, Okay. He counts all of his good works and, you know, obedience basically by the flesh as a Jew. He considers all of those good works to be rubbish, a dog bomb on his lawn. Okay. In or, so I count for, I, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that is from God and that depends on faith, so that I might know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings and become like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. Now that's in the immediate context before chapter 4. Okay, Let me continue. So Paul then in chapter 4, therefore my brothers whom I love. Now there's more to that to chapter 3, but that's that's immediately in sight of chapter 4 verse 1, which begins with the word again, therefore, hosta. Therefore my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Udiah and I entreat Synthi to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So notice what uh, <clears throat> the pastor is doing here. This is not part of a long series that he's just concluding on the book of Philippians. Far from it. He's doing a sermon series, a relevant life tip type sermon series on determination and this particular sermon is all about the importance of finding focus. But we got a problem. The Hebrews 12.2, he quoted out of context. It doesn't teach anything about determination and focus. It teaches about faith. And Philippians chapter 4 is actually, uh, it, you can't understand it properly without understanding salvation by grace through faith in the imputed righteousness of Christ. And mm, all that stuff that he mentions in the other chapters in the book. Again, you know, bad use of scripture. Um, I don't know what it is with these guys. Um, it's as if they purposely avoid uh, the front end of uh, of these epistles. It's as if they have no use whatsoever for those doctrines that are taught there because 
they're too busy giving people relevant life tips that'll you know that help them experience life change. But is it possible for a Christian to truly experience the fruits of the Holy Spirit uh, with God's Word basically treated with an exacto knife and all the doctrinal bits cut out? Hmm, I don't think so. Do not be anxious about anything. Now, I don't know the specifics of the future of your life. I don't know the specifics of the future of my life. I don't know how it's going to turn out. But I know what verse 6 is saying. It's saying don't be anxious about anything. What things are we anxious about? Debt, money, relationships, marriage. Maybe your marriage has turned out bad. Maybe you're not married and you want to be married. Maybe you're single. Maybe your work. Maybe you've got a project you can't get done or you're concerned about your employment. Maybe sickness. You know, some people are just live in fear of sickness. And it's funny because it's the people who generally aren't sick who live in fear of sickness, right? You understand that. So, for example, if somebody gets a headache and because they're anxious, they immediately think they've got a brain tumor. Right? Now, obviously, that's serious because that does happen to people. But the person who constantly lives with every kind of ache and pain they have in their body of like, oh, I'm going to die. This is gonna, this is, my life's over. This is it. It's terrible. The scripture's clear. Do not be anxious about anything. Do not be anxious. There's more. What about people? What about being attacked or having your home broken into? People live in anxiousness about that. People can't sleep at night because of things like that. What about conflict? You know, you've got a difficult conversation you've got to have with somebody. Maybe it's travel. Maybe you're anxious about travel. Many people I know are scared of getting on airplanes, scared of driving at this time of year because of the road conditions. People petrified, fearful, being dominated and controlled, not being able to make decisions about things because of fear. Now, we could come up with a list. We could keep going, right? We could, I mean, we could go for a long time, probably go for 10 minutes straight, just listing off, what about this? What about this? What about this? And we could cover everybody in the room. You know, nobody's free from this. We're all a part of this. At some level, we all disobey this scripture. Be anxious. Don't be anxious about anything. But yet, we find ourselves in anxiousness. What? Okay, so far, I've gleaned from the sermon that uh, anxiousness and multitasking are sins. Okay, um, that means we uh, we need a crucified and risen Savior to, salute, to solve our sin problem. If he just jumps right to obedience and skips over the cross, I'm going to be pretty upset. By the way, I don't know how this one's going to end. I've only reviewed it to a particular point. Uh, I, wanted to, I, I didn't want to kind of mess up the punchline for myself, but we continue. Makes up anxiousness. There's two factors to this. Two factors to anxiousness. The first one is we cannot control the future. We are unable to control the future. There are forces in this world outside of our power, outside of our influence. It doesn't matter how much, we want, how much money we have, how much time we have, or how much intellect we have. There are so many things in life we cannot control. The second factor about anxiousness is this, is that we don't trust God who ironically is the only person who can control the future. He's the only one that can control it. So I have a definition here I've come up with for anxiousness. I didn't get this from anywhere. I just came up with this. Here's my definition. Anxiousness is a complete waste of time and energy. Yeah, notice that he he admitted that uh, he didn't get this from anywhere. He just came up with it all himself. Is the job of a pastor to just, you know, make up stuff and, you know, put it on people's consciences as if somehow this has something to do with God? I mean, this is his definition, not a definition that he came up with from the scriptures. Through repetitively imagining things we cannot ultimately control. Let me give that to you again. It's kind of wordy, but that's how I roll. 
It's all right. You're smart people. You can stick with me. Anxiousness is a complete waste of time and energy through repetitively imagining things we cannot ultimately control. Does anxiousness achieve anything? Does it produce anything good? You know, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 27, it says, Which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And this time- yeah, now, th- uh, yeah, again, Matthew chapter 6. I mean, we're just kind of cherry-picking verses here. Um, right does talk about being anxious. And Jesus chastises the listeners there on the Sermon on the Mount for their lack of faith. O oh, you of little Faith, Jesus rebukes them there. It's in, it's in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, about verse 30-ish, you know, 30, 33, somewhere in there. Take a look. Take a look. It ties into our big idea that focus determines the future. Imagine if you live your whole life being anxious. Focus determines the future. Weird that he just keeps missing the faith element. You know what? I'll prove it myself. Here, uh, if you got your Bible, Matthew chapter 6... Um, yeah, one of the off-misquoted passages of the Bible from the seeker-driven movement. Um, yeah, <clears throat> Jesus, I'll start at verse 25 for context sake. Uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, or about your body, or what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow, nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith. Huh. Interesting, isn't it? Because, you know, based on how Pastor um, uh, Spreeman here is, uh, not Spreeman, Sweetman, is uh, is preaching here, you'd think that these passages are all about determination and how focus determines the future. But it seems like every passage he's misquoting, actually the point of the passage is, faith. We continue. What kind of future does that look like for you? Well, there may be some obvious things like early wrinkles and gray hair. But you see, whatever you spend your energy thinking about and focusing on, that will produce. It will, that's what you'll produce in your life in the future. Focus always determines the future. Always. Verse, that's, so how do we get... Yeah, that's, that's great, but you're not actually preaching that from a biblical text. Root of anxiousness. Well, the, the answer's here. Again, it's in plain sight. Let's read the second half of verse 6 and verse 7 again. It says this, But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the people who uh, the Apostle Paul's writing to there in Philippians chapter 4, the people who are... Christians who have faith and trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. This is written to Christians. 
you seem to keep missing the faith piece, you know, because Hebrews 11, 6, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, there are many world religions and spiritualities and faiths that teach that to find peace, you have to look inwardly, okay? You have to, in your own mind, you have to be able to open up your mind, you have to be able to meditate, and you find peace internally through your own ability, through your own cognitive ability, focusing inward. But for the Christian, it's the exact opposite. This verse is telling us that a Christian is mindful of focusing outwardly. I'm not talking about having an out-of-body experience or anything. The mind focuses outwardly. And this peace that we need comes from prayer and thanksgiving to the God of the Bible. And this is such a simple point, it is so easy to overlook it. Because in our culture you say, sure, there's got to be something more profound to it than that. Right? Surely we need some kind of really cool advanced technique. Surely we need some new website that can help us with this some new application that can help us with this. But the simple thing is, it is prayer and thanksgiving to God. No one has more peace than the God of the Bible. It says Jesus is the Prince of Peace. So we have to go outward. We have to go outward focused to Him in order to receive. Yeah, can I point something out here? Um, that's kind of like playing word games there. When when it says that Jesus is the Prince of Peace, are we talking about Jesus is the Prince of some subjective feeling of peacefulness no when it talks about jesus being the prince of peace the context of the word peace there refers to lack of hostilities in a war it's not talking about some inward feeling of of goodness or any man this is bad this peace do you understand does that make sense we don't look inward you know actually meditation is a form of self-prayer it's praying to yourself because it's all internalized through your own power trying to reach God. But the only way to do it is to look outward and look to God and what He has done and be focused on Him. So you say, well, when and how do I do this? Well, it says in everything. You notice that? In everything. Just like it says, be anxious about nothing, and there's no way of getting out of that. It says here, through prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, in everything. There are no limits to this thing. You can pray about anything. This is the beauty of Christian prayer. You don't need to be in a strange building with people wearing strange clothing, saying strange words you don't understand, reciting scripts you don't know, waving around strange smells that you don't get, that you don't, you're not used to. You don't need any of that junk. It's so simple. You can pray at any time, in any way, about anything to the God of the Bible. It doesn't matter where you're at. It doesn't matter what's happening in your life. By the way, this is an example of what Dr. Michael Horton refers to as preaching the imperatives, the, the musts, without the indicatives of, you know, the, the statements of what God has done. This is all law. Where's the gospel? You don't need to be in a special place. You don't need a special person. You don't need a special ritual. You don't need any of that stuff. You, you already have what you need. You have your mind and your mouth. And you have plenty of things to be thankful for, right? This is the beauty of... How can you say I have everything I need and then point me to me? If I have everything I need, it's because I have Christ. Why don't you point me to Him? Christian faith is it's so simple. 
It's so simple. Many people say, well, how does religion work? How does this faith work? You know, you think, there are so many religions that are constructed around so many rituals and so many practices. You think you need a special mat and you need to face in a certain direction and you need all these things. So how are people supposed to know that? That's kind of unfair for people that haven't learned that stuff, right? But that's the beauty of knowing Jesus. He's a person like us. We're made in his image. Actually, we're like him. And so we come as we are before him in prayer and thanksgiving. Authentic prayer is always coupled with thanksgiving. So when we pray, we should pray this way. We should pray, God, I cannot control this situation. He just knocked ritual and now he's teaching a ritual. Mm-hmm. We've got to admit that. That's the first step. Say, God, I cannot control this situation. I need your help. Okay, that's breaking. That's actually starting to break the power of fear. When you start admitting, God, I cannot control this. I need your help. You're starting to break the power of fear in your life. And then we pray like this. We say, God, thank you for this. Thank you for this situation. Thank you for this person. Thank you for this opportunity. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And you list all the things you can be thankful for, and it puts it in perspective. And I want to go through several examples here and then tell you my own story as how it relates to this. So you're going to tell us your story. You're ripping a bunch of, well, not even a bunch, just a small handful of verses out of context, and then you're going to tell us your story. After teaching us the importance of a particular ritual, granted, we don't have to get a prayer met and pray towards Mecca, but it's a ritual nonetheless. What if there's conflict in your life? Because I want you guys to get a picture of this. It's, it sounds so simple, doesn't it? Well, hey, I get peace from God through prayer and thanksgiving. Really, it's that simple? I want to get, help this spell this out for you. Let's say you've got conflict. You've got a conflict at work or even in the church or any relationship in your life. There's a conflict and you're anxious about it. It's keeping you awake at night. There's somebody you need to have a conversation with. You know, or there's somebody that's going to have a conversation with you and you're anxious. Here's how, you, here's how a, a Christian should pray. Say, God, thank you for this conflict. Now, that's totally counterintuitive. Most people would probably want to pray, God, change that person's mind. Get them. <laughs> Show them they're wrong. All right? That's more, maybe more natural. But if we want to grow, we want to be like Jesus... We want to be free from anxiousness. We want to receive his peace. We say, God, thank you for this conflict. Thank you for this other person. Thank you for all the blessings they've received. Thank you for the job they have. Thank you for the life they have. Thank you for all the relationships they have. Thank you for everything they have. Thank you for all the blessings in their life. I tell you, it's so unusual to do this. People do not want to do this. We say, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then you say, thank you, God, for this conflict. Thank you that we have an opportunity to go deeper in our friendship. Thank you you're going to use this in my life to grow me. Thank you, you're going to use it in their life to grow them. And then you can still pray, God, help us with the conflict. Help the conversation to go well. Help us to see each other's hearts. Help us to hear each other out. Help me to be wise in what I say, how I respond. But you've got to come at that point. Conflict is one. What about the fear of money? Maybe people are trying to collect their debts. You're indebted to people. Your creditors are trying to collect their what you owe them, people sending letters, making phone calls, knocking on your door, or you haven't got enough money to pay rent, or things like that. As soon as that anxiety comes, because the scripture says, do not be anxious about anything. So as soon as that anxiety comes, here's how you fight. You say, God, thank you so much for the clothes I'm wearing right now. Thank you, God, for the food I have to eat. 
Thank you, God, for everything. If you have, if you have a home that you live in, say, God, thank you for the roof I have over my head. Thank you for all the people in my life. Thank you for the opportunities you've given me. Thank you for the work I've had. And even if you don't have work right now, you say, God, thank you for the previous work I've had in the past. You thank God. And actually, in that situation, there may be some need for repentance. God, forgive me for mismanaging my finances. Forgive me for overextending myself. Forgive me for indulging. Forgive me. I repent. Help me do better with my money. Now, I'm glad he talks about forgiveness. That's important. It, you know, so there, there's kind of a, a quick use of the cross here. At least it's still somewhere in his theology. Got to give him credit for mentioning that. That's one way of praying. But you have to thank God for everything he's done. You have to thank him and praise him. Many people are fearful of the future. If you're fearful of the future, you don't know what's going to happen. You say this, you pray this way. You say, God, thank you that you and only you know the future. I trust in your future. You're preparing a place for me. I thank you for the blessings of the past. I thank you for the health I've had. Even the sickest person is still, you're still alive. You thank God for your life. Say, thank you for every breath I've ever taken. Thank you for the day I was born. Thank you for the day, you know the day I'll die. Thank you that every day you've given me. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You might say, listen, this is so rudimentary. This is so simple. Why are you explaining all this? Why are you? Because a lot of people just don't do this. They just do not practice this. We're consumed with anxiety. So, law, 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 law. Quick mention of the gospel. Law, law, law. You got to do. You got to do. You got to do. You got to do. You got to Where's faith? I mean, the passages when I, that you quoted, when I put them back in context, kept admonishing us to have faith and trust in our good and gracious and loving and kind God and Savior. Where's that? Anxiety. We're trying to deal with it in our own heads, internalizing things, wasting our energy and our time. And we don't go outward with it to God, to the only place we can get true peace. The scripture says, cast your anxiety, cast your burden on him. You've got to list, there are so many blessings, so many good things from God that we must list off. Maybe it is a job, I already gave that example, but you've got to thank God for every job you've ever had. Even the hard ones, even the ones that really were bad. You still thank him for Yeah, make sure you, you go through the list. I mean, make a big long list. Thank God for all of these things. Quick, quick, hurry, hurry, hurry. You don't want to keep you don't want to displease him. You gotta thank him for everything. Law. For them. For the ability to work, for the skills you have, for the passions you have. You gotta thank him that your value doesn't come from work. There's so many things. See, people run out of stuff. They say, Well, maybe I can think of two things to thank God for. But could I really keep going? Yeah. You do this for hours. You do this for days. I mean, this is a lifetime. You could come up with different stuff constantly, thanking God. And then you pray, Lord, I really need a job. I still need a job, by the way. Thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But Lord, I really do pray, provide for me. Bless me. Come through for me on this. Listen, focus determines the future. If we spend our lives worrying and concerned about everything, we'll have a pretty miserable future. Uh, yeah, just because you keep quoting that, you know, focus determines the future, doesn't mean it's a biblical teaching. It's not. You haven't shown that from a clear text yet. What you sow is what you reap. Now listen, don't psychologize this. Don't psychologize this. This is not just the Christian form of like positive thinking. Okay, anybody can stand in the mirror to say, you're worth a million bucks. You can do it. You're worth a million bucks, all right? For a Christian, that stuff is nonsense. 
Okay, that is nonsense. There's no verse in the Bible that tells you to do that. You don't go. That's going inward. That's just bouncing it off the mirror straight back at yourself. Yeah, can I point out? There's no verse in the Bible that says focus determines the future either. You're worth a million bucks. You are. No, you're not worth a million bucks. You're worth way more than that in God's eyes. We go straight to God. We don't psychologize it. It's not positive thinking. It's true worship. A Christian that is facing difficult circumstances where there's the storms that this word was shared earlier on. There's the storms of life. There's the, the flooding. There's the, the wind. There's the rain. There's the pressure of life coming on. But the Christian that's built the house on the rock in the midst of those changing circumstances can stand with their arms wide, with their head high, with their shoulders broad, and they can say, thank you, God, that you are good. No matter how bad it looks, you are good. I know one day all this will end, and you'll always be good. I know it, I know it, I know it. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You getting the picture right now? Do I need to go on for this for like 20 more minutes? It's until you feel it. It's so simple, but you know, we just don't do it. We just keep thinking about it. Oh, what if this happens? I'm imagining, I'm wasting all my time imagining things that have never actually happened to me. Why would we waste all... You know, rather than talking about God's goodness in the abstract, why don't you read the rest of the verses you you kind of skipped over that talk about God's goodness in the concrete by the things that he's done for us? Hmm? Then I think that might build up our faith and trust in him so that we could approach the life's difficulties and our suffering with confidence in our good and gracious and loving God and not be anxious. Yeah, weird. All of our time imagining things that have never actually happened to us and start, start praying, thank you, God, for this. Thank you, God, for this. You are God. Would you break through in this situation? Would you provide in this situation? It is so simple, but most people don't do it, and that's where true peace comes from. Listen, the only thing that has to change in order for us to experience peace is for us to start praying and giving thanks to the God of the Bible. It's actually one of the only things that we truly have control over is how much we pray and how much we give thanks. We try and control all kinds of things that we have barely any control over, but you know what we do have control over is how we pray and how we give thanks. Now, I want to share with you just my discipline of this. This is something the Lord has grown in me over the years. I've always loved to pray, but it's always been an up and down journey for me. As of right now, I'm praying probably about 30 minutes each day. I spend about 30 minutes praying. I'll spend about 15 minutes. I have a Bible reading plan that takes me through the Bible in about a year. I read the Bible through each year. 15 minutes of reading, and then I'll journal for 15 minutes, and I'll write down my thoughts and what I feel like God's speaking to me about through the Scripture. So that's... 30 minutes of doing that, and then I spend another 30 minutes just praying. And I'll just start by just thanking God, just whatever's on my heart, whatever I just read about, I'll start with that. And then I also have a list of things I'm going through that I'm praying for. And then I also I'll have a printout of all the prayer requests uh, from Sunday. And I'll pray through everybody's things that people have requested prayer for. And I'll pray through that list of things in my journal that I'm seeking God about. And the great thing is I've seen many, many answers to prayers that way. When you actually intentional, intentionally do that, you can look back over the years and say, look at all the things that God has done. Look at all the answers to prayers. You know, if you don't write it down, you actually forget. And then you look back and say, well, God hasn't really... Yeah, okay, listen, there's nothing wrong with praying. It's absolutely a great thing to do, and Christ taught us how to do it. Notice, though, that the assurance of God's goodness comes in the answered prayers rather than in the indicatives of that are written in scripture. Hey, not good. You done much. 
You don't realize all the little things he did along the way that added up to the big things. So even last year, I was praying for many things. I was, there was many people who asked for prayer for uh, the health of loved ones. People who were struggling with sickness. I had many entries in my prayer journal where I was praying for people, and I was able to actually mark it off the day that person was restored to health. Praise God for that. There were things in this church, you know, the special offerings we took up uh, during last year. I had prayer goals. I wrote those in. Say, God, I, I pray that we better raise this much money. I was able to mark those off. God answered those prayers. I prayed that we'd, we'd have over 100 people in the church last year. God answered that prayer. I prayed that we'd add two families. Last year I was praying from the beginning of the year all the way through. I was praying that God would add two families to the church. Well, he blew that one away. I think my faith was too small. If I'd have been praying for like 10, then we'd have even more. But it's amazing to look back and say, look what God has done. Look what God has done. He's answered these prayers. I fought for these things in prayer. I prayed to God. And I got before him. And even though there were days where things were really hard. Okay. Here's, this is a more advanced subtlety to this thing. But here's the idea. Notice the expectation here is that God did these things, you know, well, because of his obedience. God is our gracious and loving father and he cares for us. Okay. And if we're saved by grace through faith and we're covered in the perfect righteousness of Christ, then the idea here is is that the the relationship we have with God is not one of employer-employee. You do this, God pays you a wage. Um, My concern here is is the way Matt's describing um, prayer here. It's as if this is the work that he did to receive the wage and that's the miracles and the answered prayers and the healings and the things like that. That is a big confusion of law and gospel. And it's uh, it, theologically, the categories that, that you would be dealing with, in fact, if you want, really want to read up on this, volume two of Francis Pieper's Christian Dogmatics makes this, kind of spells this out very clearly. It's the difference between the concept of infusia gratia, which is in, the infused grace, which is really the beating heart of Roman ca- Catholic uh, theology and it's a heresy. It's not the. It's not a proper understanding of the scriptures, um, or what is known as the um, gratuitous. Uh, how does it, the the gratuitous favor de propter Christum, the gratuitous favor of God on account of Christ? Okay, God is gratuitously gracious to us, not because of something inside of us or because of our obedience, but because of what Christ has done. You got, there's a big difference, big difference uh, between those two categories. God, even you and our lives, things, difficult things happening. I still got before God and I said, thank you for this. Thank you for this and I pray for this. Right now, this is new for me. I'm not a morning person. I did not grow up being a morning person. I grew up having what's called ragdoll syndrome which is where you're a ragdoll in the morning. Okay, true story. My parents would try and get me out of bed and they'd be moving my arms around and I would be awake in my head but not in my body. And so they'd get me dressed and it was quite comical. (laughs) I am not a morning person. But as of lately, even this last year, I felt the energy and the the ability and the discipline to actually be getting up most mornings at about 5.30 and uh, doing a little bit of working out and things like that, but also spending lots of time Reading the word, journaling, praying, and then reading other things that I thought the Lord lead me to read in different books. And dedicating a large amount of time in the morning before my day even starts 
to the Lord. Okay, again, there's nothing wrong with morning prayer and starting your day off in God's word and prayer. In fact, that is a fantastic way to start your day, and Christians ought to be doing that. But what's missing from this is a discussion of the goodness of God and the goodness of Christ. And it's be, without that, then what happens is it's easy to think that God blesses me because of my obedience. But Christians start their mornings in prayer and thanksgiving and in God's word, not to earn God's favor, but because they already have it. And that's not what's being preached here. It's really, really saddening and confusing all at the same time. But we continue. To give it to him, to let it be a foundation for him, that I can seek him in prayer. And I tell you, it's a great way to start the day. I start my whole day knowing, man, I already like conquered a bunch of stuff today because I relied on God and I prayed and I sought God. This is a Christian discipline. Listen, focus determines the future. Focus determines the future. What you And it keeps repeating it, but there isn't a passage that says that. What you do today determines what happens tomorrow. What you start doing this year will determine what you're doing in 10 years. I want you to take a next step immediately because I want you to get this truth into your heart. On the back of your communication card, there's a step here. It's the third one down. It says, memorize Philippians 4 verse 6. And that is printed on the back of your program. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. I want you to check that box. You can take your program home and you can just cut that little section out and maybe stick it on your mirror, stick it somewhere where you're going to see it. You know, here's the irony of what he's teaching. is What he's teaching is actually going to create all kinds of anxiety as to whether or not you've, er- you've done enough to earn God's favor. Without the preaching of the indicatives, what Christ has done for us, and all of the imperatives, that then what happens is you create the anxiety of, have I done enough? Have I earned God's favor? Why isn't God answering me? Maybe it's because I'm not good enough. Maybe it's because I haven't done what I needed to do. Have I thanked him for everything? Ah! You see what I'm saying? A couple of times a day, and you just want to repeat that verse to yourself, and then uh, pray, and thank God for that truth. But you want to get that truth into yourself. So I don't need to be anxious about anything, but with prayer and thanksgiving, make my requests made known to God. Take that step, and then we'll, we'll collect in these um, communication cards at the end of the meeting with the, uh, the offering envelope as well that you have there. We'll collect that in. But I want to challenge you to take that step. Then verse 7 says this. It says that as you receive this peace, it says uh, it will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now that's a powerful statement. What it's saying is, is that in Jesus Christ there is spiritual protection. And only in Jesus Christ is there spiritual protection. You see, if you open yourself up to other spiritualities, there's only two kingdoms in this world. There's the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, and everything else is the kingdom of darkness. There are angels, angelic beings throughout the scripture. There's the Holy Spirit of God, the person of God, who interacts with us, but there are also spiritual beings. There are fallen beings who masquerade as alternative gods. There are just some things that are just made up, have no power to them. But there are other things that masquerade as God and actually have spiritual power. And if you open yourself up to anything else, what you're truly opening yourself up to is to a fallen angel. Or a demon, as the Bible would call it. If it's anything else, it's that. 
But in Jesus, there's spiritual protection. So if you're in Jesus, you're protected spiritually from all of these forces. That's a pretty, that's a, that's a comforting thought, isn't it? I'm spiritually protected. What if you're not in Jesus? Well, then there's not spiritual protection. This is the gospel. This is how, this is what spiritual protection means for us. The gospel is not this. It is not if you focus hard enough on Jesus, then you'll be saved. Or if you pray hard enough, or if you're just thankful enough, then you'll be saved. Because you know what? That would be salvation on our terms. Well, I prayed. Didn't I pray enough, God? Wasn't I thankful enough, God? Shouldn't you accept me because of my gratefulness? It doesn't work that way. This is the gospel. And it okay, now here's the weird thing, okay? He's, he's steering into an area where he seems to be getting it right, but the problem is that he hasn't connected uh, justification and sanctification correctly. Here he's talking about justification, and everything he's been preaching about has to do with the imperatives of the Christian life, but he's done so by without discussing it. So here's the deal. All of his preaching up to this point has been on the quid pro quo. God will bless me. God will take care of me. God will protect me if I am thankful enough, if I thank him for everything, if I pray, if I this, if I that. So here's the thing. It's like his theology is actually inconsistent because what he's saying here, there's some pretty decent truth to what he's saying. The problem is, is that he doesn't see that what he's saying here, it contradicts what he was been, what he's been preaching for the last 30 minutes. Ties right into our big idea. It is the focused determination of Jesus focused on us that secured our future. That's the gospel. That's why focus determines the future. Jesus, there's nobody else in human history who has been so passionately and intensely focused on saving people and helping people than the person of Jesus. See, all other doctrines teach, hey, follow this, or every other gurus teach, follow this doctrine and you'll find God. Follow this teaching and you'll find God. Follow this way and you'll find God. Jesus is the only one that says, I'm God, follow me. It's an exclusive claim. I'm the only way, the only one you could ever know. That's the gospel message. Trust in Jesus. It's trusting in Jesus. Trusting that his blood ran down that cross, that he paid the ultimate price, that he died, that he was buried for three days, that he rose again, and that as he rose again, he gives us new life. And that as he gives us life, then we do what Hebrews 12 says. We run the race with endurance. Fix uh, yeah, he's kind of, he's mixing He's mixing something to the uh, with the gospel that's just not there. As he gives us new life, oh boy, you know, we got a problem here. He's trying to graft in a foreign teaching here regarding the gospel. The gospel is the good news of what Christ has done for us, period. Okay? Our, the progress we make in sanctification is something that is a fruit of the gospel, but it isn't part of the gospel. He's actually uh, it is mixing two things that just don't go together. Mixing our eyes on him. A Christian still needs focused determination on Jesus, but it is his focus on us that has saved our souls. Focus determines the future. Let's read verse 8 and 9. It says this, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just... Whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think on these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, 
practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now what he's saying here is he's saying that how we feel is determined by how we think. Many people get this. Um, he didn't, Paul didn't say anything about how we feel. <sighs> Again, it's like he, he, huh. Matt here has some concept of the gospel. And it's in what the concept he has of it, for the most part, is solid, but he keeps trying to graft into the gospel stuff that just doesn't belong. He's now this is eisegesis. He's seeing something in the text that ain't there. Backwards, I think I if I get my emotions, if I can just do things that will make me feel better, then I'll be better. That's not the case. The case is how we think determines how we feel. And verse 8 is basically saying the more we can practice focusing our mind on godly things, the more of God's peace we'll experience. That's an amazing truth. The Bible is essentially saying that to deal with our stress, our anxiety, and our mediocrity, the issue is focusing our minds on godly things. If you lack peace, you're a believer in Jesus, but you lack peace, your mind is focused on the wrong thing. He says, think on these things. Now, here's what I want to do. So we say, well, how, what, how do we, you know, how do, what do we focus on? How do we do this? Well, the first one, I already spent a lot of time doing it, is prayer and thanksgiving. Okay? If you, I'm going to show you the next step here beyond that. But if you don't do that first one, what I'm about to share with you doesn't matter. It's pointless. The first one is prayer and thanksgiving. That's how you focus on God. But from this list that Paul has given us here, he's given us this great list, things to think about. You may look at this and say, how do you just think about these things? How do you, from your day-to-day life, week to week, how do you just think about this stuff? How does that work? Well, I want to give us some high-level categories that we can see in this list. And then we're going to focus our minds on how do we actually achieve these things in God. He first starts off here in verse 8. He says, finally, brothers. Brothers. That makes me think of family, right? Family. That's the, I've got five F words for you. They're all good F words. First one is family, so he says, you know, brothers. The next thing he says is whatever is true. Whatever is true. I think of truth. I think of God's word. God's word is absolutely true. Makes, I could, we put that under the broad category of faith. Okay, that's the second F word. So you might want to write these down, by the way. First one is family. Second one is faith. Then he says whatever is honorable, whatever is just. I think of being just, operating in justice, that, you know, operating, having justice in your life, that means serving the poor, caring for the needy, those who have the right to food and clothing and shelter but don't have it, and we fight for their needs. We're generous to the poor, generous to the disadvantaged. We give to them. That really, and what is honorable. Isn't that social justice? That really makes me think of finances. One of the biggest things we can use actually are resources to help those who are without. That's the third F word, finances. Then he says, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely. Purity and love. That makes me think of friendship, relationships, purity and relationships and friendships. That's the f- yeah, every time he reads something and then says, that makes me think of. Um, mm, yeah, th- this is almost like he's mixing exegesis in that really bad um, you know, question. What does this verse mean to you? Uh, Not good, not good. The fourth F word. And then he says, whatever is commendable, and if there is any excellence. What is commendable, if there's any 
excellence. When I think of excellence and things that are being commendable, I think of work, career. The best word I can have for this is the word filled, your career filled or you're working a field, to keep it within the F. Okay? And then it says, whatever is worthy of praise, and that really could categorize anything. But these five areas that you can see in this list, they're kind of high-level categories, those are like actually areas that balance our lives out. Many people put all their focus in one or two of them to the detriment of the others, and then they suffer because of it. So, for example, people put all of their energy in their field. Everything's in their field. They're working their field. They're pouring all their focus into it. We know that will determine the future, which will destroy family, friendships, faith. That's what happens. Not that you shouldn't put energy in your field, but if you do it exclusively. But to be balanced, we actually have to have our mind thinking about all of these things, these five high-level categories to have balance. Now, how do we practice focusing on these things? These five high-level categories of balance? Oh, yeah. Again, this is a to- this is not exegesis. This is something completely different. Hi, misadventures here. Misadventures and missing the point. Good night. I want to give you some very highly practical advice right now. If you don't do this, it's not the end of the world. But if you want to grow, I would challenge you to do this. We have to choose our thoughts. One of the ways of choosing your thoughts is to get your thoughts out of your head. If you ever noticed or not, but if you just continually think about something, you don't make any progress with it. You're just stuck, trapped in this thought over and over, thinking about it, thinking about it, thinking about it. You've got to get it out of your head. The only way to get out of it, there's two ways to get it out of your head. Yeah, it's so easy just to get things out of my head. See, that's what i got to do. One is to speak it. You've got to verbalize it out loud. The other is to write it down. Okay, those are the two ways to get your thoughts out of your head and to actually bring clarity to what am I actually thinking about right now. To say it or to write it. Many people live their whole lives and they never say what they're actually thinking. Fears they've got, things they're going through, they never verbalize it, they never say it. But you've got to get it out of your head, either verbally or on paper. I'm going to give you a list of a process here to go through. I want you to write this down if you're taking notes. The first thing is I want you to block off some time this week or next week. If you have half a day, that would be fantastic. If you only have a couple of hours, that's fine as well. But you need to block off some time to do this and get rid of all your distractions. Then you need to pray. The foundation of this is prayer. You say, God, guide me during this process. I want to focus my thoughts. My thoughts are all over the place. I'm thinking about, I'm anxious about things. Help me focus my thoughts. You start with prayer. Then you pray, God, speak to me. Maybe read some of the scripture too. Maybe read these verses again. Then I want you to make a long list. Either you can just say it out loud if that's you, because I know some people are like, listen, I'm not going to get a pen and make a list. I draw pictures. I don't make bulleted lists. Okay? I know not everybody tracks with this kind of thing, but try at least once. All right? Try at least once. Make a list in each of those five categories. You start with, maybe start with faith. Make a list of all the things you say, I feel like God would want me to grow in all these things. I feel like God, I feel like these things, even this year, would be things that I need to grow in. Things that God's put on my heart. You say, well, I don't know how to hear from God. Well, still get out whatever's in your heart, write it down. Because as soon as you get it down, you may say, you know what, that probably isn't God's will for me. But until you wrote it down, you didn't know. I know this is highly practical, but I want to help you with this. You make a long list. And then you want to do a second pass through that list and make them as specific. Notice the subjectivity here. Specific as possible. With possible you know, make them uh, achievable and make sure they've got time frames, those kind of things. 
Then, and this is where most people fail because they're overwhelmed with how long this list is. And this is in each category you want to do this in faith, finances, family, in your field, in your friendships. You want to do this in each category. Even if it's just verbally, but writing it down does help. Then what you do is you've got your list. You want to make a second column. And then you take the top two and you say, of these top two, which one is most important? It doesn't take long to figure it out. Figure out which one's the most important, you put that in the second column. And then you do it with the next two. Which one of these two is most important? And you put it in the second column. And then the next two, which of these two are the most important? And so you're basically creating like a bracketed list. It's like a brackets in sports, okay? Just kind of getting smaller. And you keep making columns, depending on how long your list is, until you get to the point where you get down to one thing. Am I sinning if I refuse to employ this technique? Because this technique is not taught in this passage. If I refuse to employ this technique and say, nope, I'm not going to do this, am I sinning? In each of these areas that you know is the most important thing you should be doing. Many people will not spend the time doing this and they won't think it through because their thoughts are all over the place. They're distracted. They never identify what it is, what is it that God wants me to do right now. And this is one process that begins that. Then you take each of those five areas, you've got five things. You submit them to somebody else, a godly Christian, somebody who knows you. And you say, do, do you feel like these things are the things I need to focus on right now? Do these things seem good to you? Do they agree with your spirit? Because you want to submit it to somebody else, okay? That's the next step. This process actually is enormously helpful if it's bathed in prayer and if you're doing it for Jesus. If Jesus is your focus and you do this, there's an enormous level of peace that can come. Because you actually get the idea of, I know now what I need to do. I don't know what's going to happen in 10 years' time. I don't know what's going to happen in 5 years' time. I don't know what's going to happen next week. But I know right now what God is asking me to do. I'm actually working through this process of doing this. Then you want to do the hardest thing first. Do one at a time. Now, you may object. You may say, I just can't do this. What happens if I don't do this? You know what? If you don't do this, it's not the end of the world. But if you want to grow, if you want to mature, if you want to understand how do I focus, how do I actually get my mind full of these thoughts of God, you have to go through something like this. You have to get before God in some way and say, God, show me. What should I be doing? What should I be focusing on? How should I be moving forward? And I want to give you a faith goal right away. Okay? Because I believe the found any other area you could exclusively focus on and your life will fall to pieces because you don't have balance, except for the area of faith. If you focus on your relationship with God, everything else actually comes to life. I want to give you a faith goal right now. I want you to spiritually grow over the next three months by participating in a small group. Here's the great thing is you could write down that, that faith goal on the back of your program and you could immediately... Yeah, my faith will only grow if the, uh, you know, the Bible study that takes place in that small group uh, is, well, the Bible's rightly handled, correctly taught, and law and gospel's correctly distinguished, and there's no false doctrine and weird stuff going on. I, have, I don't have a lot of confidence that that's what would take place in that small group based on what I'm hearing from Matt here. Cross it off. That's what would give you an enormous sense of achievement. And then go ahead and sign up on your communication card for a small group. Listen, focus does determine the future. The practice of writing out the things of what God wants us to do will only benefit us if our heart is towards Jesus. If our heart isn't towards Jesus, this is useless. It is meaningless. 
it doesn't matter in the end. Otherwise, it's just a self-centered practice. And above any practice, above any, any process we go through, there is a genuineness from our heart that God is looking for. There is a genuineness. genuineness. Good luck on that, considering that our sinfulness goes all the way down to our heart. Um, yeah, so just just make sure your motives are right. Like that's an easy thing to do. Saying, God, I want to seek you. I want to do your will. Our future is determined because of the focus of Jesus. And as we focus, as we aim everything on him, we can do what Hebrews 12 says, where it says, let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Yeah, that wasn't about focus, though. When we put that passage back in context, that passage was all about faith. Listen, I know this, this last little section here of this message was highly, highly practical, going through steps, what to do, how to organize these things. Yeah, it would only be practical if really the only thing I needed to rein in my sinful nature and my sinful thoughts was just some practical steps. But here's what you have to go, go home with today is this, the focus determines the future. Yet no text says that. That if you squander what God has given you, you'll look back on your life, at the end of your life, and say, man, I wasted it. I only yeah, I promise you, uh, you're going to squander what God has given you because you're sinful by nature still. You still have a sinful flesh that you deal with. He had one life and it's gone. And it's actually the disciplined life that lives for God. And we're going to be going through this. Next week we're looking at desire devotion. Again, Jesus is the one who had the disciplined life. Why won't you talk about that with greater depth? The week after that, eliminating excess. And then the last week is high-level habits. We're looking at the ant. In Proverbs, it talks about the ant. Look at the ant. Those creatures are pretty darn smart. And the Bible says you've got to study the ant and look at its lifestyle. Look at how it lives. Look at what it, do, what it does, how it operates, and be like that. These are little creatures that live in dirt. And they're smarter than us most of the time. So we can learn from them. Living a life this way is pleasing to God. It is not about going through the motions. It is not about following our procedures. Yet Philippians 3 said, If anyone thinks he has confidence in the flesh, I have more reason. Then he lists all the litany of all the things he did in obedience to the Torah and said all of that is rubbish. And he wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but instead the righteousness that is from God and is by faith. It was just verses, verses in front of the passage he was reading from Philippians, and he didn't read it. This is all imperative, but no indicative. Very bad mishandling of the text. It's not about achieving success. It is about trusting Jesus and saying, Lord Jesus, what right now do you want me to be doing? And it is about submitting. It's not about achieving, but what do you want me to do so I can achieve it? Bring it to others and following him. Listen, if you make God the center of your life, every area of your life. If you make God the center of your life, well, good luck on that. I, you know, I hope you can figure out how to pull it off. Because um, Paul, writing in Romans 7, says, The things I don't want to do, I do. Oh, what a wretched man that I am. Who will save me from this body of death? Hmm. Will come to life. You'll experience blessing. It doesn't mean your life will be perfect. Jesus' life was perfect. Yeah, and Jesus' perfect life, I mean, it's like you give lip service to it, but you, it, you can't figure out how to make sense of it in this theology because it doesn't fit. But he gives that to us.
All right, so there you go. That was our sermon, Determination 101, Find Focus. Just, I mean, he has some recollection, some concept of what the cross is about, but he's trying to make it fit into a works-righteousness-wage-based quid pro quo uh, theology, and it just doesn't fit there, does it? Sad. Pray for Pastor Matt and pray for the uh, folks there that uh, with their daughter who was born premature. Keep them in your prayers as well. All right, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so at my email address, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. You can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. That's the indicative. You preach that before the imperatives. Until tomorrow, amen. <laughs>